the Holy Family Chapel Hill podcast, where you will find our weekly sermons, as well as the occasional reflection, conversation, or interview. We are glad you are here. Welcome. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. So he would have destroyed them, had not Moses, his chosen, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath from consuming them. I speak to you today in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. With a mighty hand, God has just liberated his people from slavery in Egypt and led them and sustained them as they wander in the wilderness with bread from heaven. Listen to what the Lord says to his people just before our reading from Exodus chapter 32 today. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice, And if you keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. The way that the Old Testament typically identifies who God is, is through his promises, what the Bible calls his covenants, the covenants that God makes with his people. The Bible is full of such promises, and they are kind of like the theological glue that holds the whole thing together as a single book. And this covenant from the book of Exodus is not the first of the covenants. God, if you look back to uh, Genesis, the book before Exodus, at the very beginning of the Bible, God makes promises to Noah and to Abraham. And to Abraham, he says that, that he will give Israel his people, a future with God. He will make Abraham's descendants number like the stars, and they will be his people. But looking back to this covenant that I just read in in Exodus, notice the logic. Notice how it works. Notice that it works on the logic of if and then. If Israel obeys the words of the law, If Israel listens to everything that God says and heeds the commands given to Moses on Sinai, the Ten Commandments, all the rules in the Bible that you've probably heard about, if they do this, then then Israel can become God's chosen people. Or maybe think of it like a call and a response. God calls his people to obedience, and the people respond, pledging themselves to obedience. All that the Lord has spoken, the people say, we will do. After this, Moses leaves the people, 
he returns to the top of the mountain to commune with the Lord. Faithful Israel, now pledged to obedience, becomes a people of God's promise. And all is well. And this is where our text from today begins. The passage works as two dramatic confrontations, two scenes, scene one and scene two. We'll look at each of them in turn. Scene one opens. The days since Moses' departure to the top of the mountain have turned into weeks. Weeks have turned into months. Aaron, the brother of Moses and a newly minted priest, assumes the mantle of leadership over the congregation, but his charisma and his authority pale in comparison to that of his brother, the prophet and the lawgiver. The people grow anxious, impatient. A crisis begins to stir among the crowds. Will Moses come back? Has our God forgotten us, his people? One thing, though, is certain. The people are stuck. They are stuck at the bottom of the mountains. They are stuck in the wilderness. They rely day to day on God providing them food from heaven and water from a rock. And so they do what any sensible congregation would do in the midst of a pastoral transition. They air all of their grievances to the clergy. Aaron, they say, come make gods for us. That Moses, that Moses, he's abandoned us. We need a new God to worship. Aaron doesn't seem to know rule number one of pastoral ministry. When the people are angry, never do everything that they say. And so Aaron does just what they say. He melts the gold. He casts it into the image of a golden calf. He builds an altar before it, and he offers sacrifice. By the way, if uh, my, my favorite passage in all of the Old Testament takes place just after this passage for today in Exodus chapter 33, uh, when Moses comes down the mountain and confronts Aaron about this whole golden calf business, Aaron starts making excuses. He says, Moses, I, I don't know what happened. I just threw the gold into the fire and out walked a calf. I'm serious. He actually does say this. You can go look it up. The unthinkable, though, has now happened. Israel makes an idol. You and I might wonder, what's the big deal with all of this idolatry stuff? After all, you and I live in a very different world than the world of the Bible. We live in a world where religious plurality is vindicated at every corner. A world where any one person's God is no better than another person's God, and to insist otherwise is often seen as insensitive or even a threat. But the world of the Bible is not our world. In the world of the Bible, idolatry is a catastrophe of the highest order. Everything that Israel is, Israel's entire being and entire life, is due to God's gracious choice of Israel from among the nations of the world to be his people, 
And yet, the very first thing that Israel does is to violate the first two laws that God had given them. You shall not have any gods before me. You shall not make any graven image. By the way, the reason that this idolatry stuff is so bad is that every attempt to contain God inside of an image, inside a a physical thing, is inevitably an attempt to take control of who God is, to turn God into our own possession, to make God live and act under the conditions that we want God to do so, to fall under the illusion that you and I have control. Do you see how the law works in all of this? God gives it to us. God gives us the law, and it is good and it is holy. But even before Moses comes down from the mountain, we become restless, disobedient, and rebellious. We fail to keep our side of the if-and-then covenant. God's call resounds, but our response is empty, nothingness. The law unveils the fact that every attempt that you and I try, uh, any, every attempt that you and I make to take control of our lives, every God of our own fashioning leads to this nothingness. Be it money, be it sex, be it a sense of achievement or importance, be it workaholism, I could go on, the list could continue. The point is, is that every idol that you and I make leads to this nothingness. So as the smoke rises from the sacrifice before the calf, the if-then covenant has been breached. And Israel's response throws everything into chaos. The relationship with the God who created it and redeemed it has been broken. Israel's very future is gone. As the greatest prophet of the 20th century, Willie Nelson, puts it, yesterday's kisses are still burning And yesterday's memories still find me. Scenes from the past keep returning. I've got a wonderful future behind me. The words, everything that the Lord has spoken, we will do, has faded into the chorus of Israel. These, O Israel, are your gods. The future is dead. Thus ends scene one. On to scene two. In scene two, we ascend from the depths of the valley of idolatry to the heights of Mount Sinai, where the glory of God has appeared to Moses. But God interrupts his communion with Moses, and he is livid. Not just angry, mind you, but he is livid. Go down at once. God demands Moses, for your people have acted perversely. Notice that he doesn't say, my people have acted perversely, but your people, Moses, have acted 
perversely. This should show us just how angry he is. And in case that you don't get the point that in this whole idolatry business, everything is at stake for Israel, listen to how God responds to their, this, their disobedience. Let me alone, he says, so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. God is prepared to annihilate his plan completely and start all the way over with Moses. Now, you and I may wince a little bit at this idea of the wrath of God, and probably for good reason it has been misused and abused. However, we should not let our prejudgments get in the way of what the Bible actually says. To do so would be to make our own golden calf under the mantle of tolerable religion. I speak as one guilty here. I speak as one who often wants God to be a big cosmic ball of niceness. But this is not Mr. Rogers or Oprah Winfrey that we are dealing with here. This is the Lord God of the universe. The Lord God of the universe who is holy and who is supreme over all things. Holy and supreme, but not capricious. And what follows, I think, will make that very, very clear. Moses, when he hears this, appeals to God. He intercedes and mediates on behalf of the people. And here we see Moses acting not as he did earlier as a lawgiver, but he acts as a mediator, a mediator between God and the people of Israel. But pay close attention to just what it is that Moses says. Moses does not attempt to soften Israel's sin, but he does remind God. He reminds God of what God had already promised generations ago to Israel's ancestors. This is what he says. Remember Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants. Remember how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven. What could it possibly mean for God to swear by his own self? That's very strange language. What if, what if it means that God is both the if and the then side of the promise? If God is both the call and our response, what if it means that in all of this covenant business that God is really all that we have See, it's important to think about this because Moses does not look back to the sort of two-way, if-then covenant of the law, but he appeals to an earlier promise, a one-way promise, a promise where God acts and where God responds on our behalf. And the most remarkable thing, the most unexpected and beautiful thing about all this is that God allows himself to be persuaded. 
God listens, God remembers, and God relents. God relents, giving Israel a future where they once had no future, calling into existence, as Paul says, the things that are not. Friends, the God that you and I have come here today to worship is a God who keeps his promises. No matter how much of a mess that you've made of your life, our Lord God has not abandoned you. No matter how disobedient, how forgetful you and I are, God remembers his holy covenant that he made long ago to Israel. For our God is a God of the future and not a God of the past alone. Israel and the church have their existence. You and I have our existence only because God has picked up the pieces. And the fact that God renews his promise, that he renews this covenant to Israel, means that the basis of the covenant all along was never really our obedience. It was never really if and then. The basis of the covenant was always at the very bottom, even from the very beginning, not if then, but God's patience and God's mercy for us. What is true for Israel can also be true for each of us, because we have more than a law to live by. We have more than a law giver. We have a mediator. We have a mediator who stands in the breach made by our disobedience, who stands between us and God. As Moses pleaded before the promise to Abraham, so we too have one who makes intercession for us, who is, as the epistle to the Hebrew says, the mediator of a new and a better covenant. This mediator can stand between us and God because he is himself God as one of us. This mediator fulfills the if and the then. He fulfills the law. This mediator is both God's call and our response. Every sinner is atoned for by his death. Every sin accounted for by his blood. His name is Jesus. And it is in his name that God has made a covenant by himself for us. In him that God swears by himself. It is in his name alone that we have a future. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. You can find out more about the Church of the Holy Family at holyfamilychapelhill.org. Thanks for listening, and join us again next week. Peace be with you. Oh.